So I know a lot of you are not singers. I'm not a singer. But I want you to sing along with me this morning, okay? So we're going to try this. How many of you all know that little song? Um, oh, what is the name of that little song? <laughs> Father Abraham. That one. All right, here we go. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then, okay. All right. We'll stop there. Good. Good job. What does Abraham got to do with it? That's where we're at this morning. So we're in Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're headed. You want to grab your Bibles and turn there? We're going to do the first nine verses this morning. We're probably going to spend five or six weeks in uh, the life of Abraham, at least this beginning initial period, okay? Um, really, Abraham's story goes all the way up through at least chapter 36 here in the book. Uh, we've got a lot of Abraham to cover. And, um, and really, what does a, why in the world would we spend so much time on Abraham? Well, the first reason is the Bible spends a lot of time on Abraham. And here's the second or third and fourth reasons. You realize that about 90% of the world's religions trace their lineage to Abraham? Jews, Christians, Muslims all trace their lineage to Abraham. It would be a good idea for us to know a little bit about this guy. Some people have said, You don't know much about Jesus if you don't know much about Abraham. Because the two are connected. You are not going to know Jesus well if you do not understand and know Abraham well. And you're not going to know your faith well. You're not going to know your Bible well. You're not going to know God well if you don't understand Abraham. He is critical to the story. This is the initial calling of God on an individual whom he gives the promises on which the rest of the Bible are built. Everything. The entire rest of Scripture is linked to Abraham. So we need to get him right. We need to understand what is going on and what this relationship is that God has with Abraham. What kind of a calling it is that he has placed on Abraham's life. If we're going to understand well the rest of the Bible, and we're going to, and not just the Bible, we don't want just to understand the Bible. We want to have a relationship with God that is vibrant and growing and sustainable and meaningful here in Lake Oconee. And for that to happen and happen well, believe it or not, you need to understand and know Abraham. So let's get there. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moret Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. We need your aid, your help to understand it, that it would be good for us, that it would be applied to our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and do so. Make our meditations fruitful, our labors in the word this morning, profitable for us. For your glory and your name's sake, we pray it. Amen. So one of the things you'll notice right away as we begin is that we're dealing with a guy named Abram, not Abraham. Same guy. Some people have said uh, one way of kind of describing this, helping to remember it is, Abram means father, Abraham, father of many. Or you could do it this way, Abram means daddy, Abraham means big daddy. Okay? So... You take those two, don't worry about it, don't get mixed up, don't don't get confused. Abram is Abraham, and Abraham is Abram, and it'll be okay, it'll all work its way out in the wash, okay? But just get the scene in your head as we, as we begin, as we think about this um, calling that is on Abraham. That is the initial thing that jumps off the page at you, it's in the, the first three verses, And in the first three verses, what we learn right away is who it is that initiates this relationship. And it's not Abraham, it's God. God is the initiator. Abraham wasn't, he wasn't just neutral either. He wasn't just sitting there, you know, waiting one day or, you know, hmm, I'm thinking about Yahweh, thinking about the Lord. Abraham was actively involved in the worship of other gods. In, in uh, philosophical terms, Abraham was what we call a polytheist. That is, he worshipped a myriad of gods. And we know this because if, if you were to turn to Joshua 24, and you can do this or you can just make a note, Joshua 24 is a record of, a, of a, the covenant renewal ceremony that Joshua leads the Israelites through. And as Joshua begins to retell the story in, in Joshua 24, here is a little tidbit that we get. Joshua 24, verse 2, he says, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates, and I led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. So Abraham's father Terah 
was a polytheist. And you know what you did in those days? You did exactly what your daddy did. So it's a very reasonable expectation that Abraham himself was a polytheist, that he was worshiping other gods. That was just kind of the norm of the day. You you hedged your bets. Uh, Caitlin and I were just recently uh, over and um, and had an opportunity to do a little touring in Italy. We we went and we saw the Pantheon. It's the oldest continual building in use in Rome. But the Pantheon was a place where you went and you worshipped whatever god you wanted to worship. And they were all housed there. You could worship any of them there. Now today, if you go there, they've got an altar set up, and it's a church. It's a Christian church, a Catholic church. But back then, in, in, in its heyday, it was a building, a facility used in which all of the gods were worshipped. And so it had all these little alcoves and nooks and crannies, and, and there would have been gods in each of those, and you would have gone there and worshipped one of them or all of them or none of them. And that's the way it was for a lot of folks. Abraham was that guy. He was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, worshiping all of the gods, hedging his bets. And as he was there, worshiping the gods, God came and called. And God called him, and he sent him to another land. I want you to see, this is really important. Look at the way the language is in these first three verses. God is the one working. He says over and over again, I, I will show you a land. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so the first and important feature of the good news is that God, He is the first mover. It all begins and ends with him. Listen, we're Presbyterian. I don't know if you knew that. And, and, and we always get tagged with this, you know, you're, you're the people that believe in that predestination stuff, aren't you? And it's true, all right? So if you're shocked, I'm sorry. But yes, we do. But listen, here's the point. If you back it up, anywhere, at any point along the way, you're going to have to stop and you're going to have to realize and you will have to confess, if you're going to take the Bible seriously, that no matter what you believe about predestination, it is all of God. Your salvation begins and ends with God. Somewhere along the way, He is the initial mover. And whether or not you want to believe, He moved and He calls on you in such a way that you can't refuse that. That's up for debate, I guess, okay? But in this instance, what we get is a picture of God pursuing a man who had absolutely nothing to do with him. No desire, not the slightest inclination of his heart was towards Yahweh, the Lord. Abraham was, was, he was as far away as you could get from worshiping the God of Scripture. And yet, when God came and called on him, it was a life-changing event. And it was all of God. He is the one moving. Abraham wasn't down there, you know, wondering, hmm, I think maybe I've got the wrong God here. I think I need to... No, God came and he called Abraham out of that situation. 
And so what we just begin with is this whole, the whole thing, the whole show, the whole, um, the whole of our salvation initiates and begins with God. Nothing will happen. Nothing would have ever happened apart from God moving towards us. That is the great but God of Scripture, isn't it? It's the great but God. Here we were, living our lives, completely happy uh, uh, to do so on our own, and yet God came along and He moved towards us and He called us. Now, if you look at what this section follows, okay? What this section follows is chapter 11, obviously. It's the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, the people, there's this kind of a a push. You have the flood, and after the flood, the people have all gotten together, uh, and they've started thinking, and they want to make a great name for themselves, and so they get together and they build this tower. Now, if if you want to know probably what it was they were building, they were building a ziggurat. They were building an, an, uh, um, you know, almost like a pyramid of sorts. The desire that they had was to make a great name for themselves by being uh, accessible to God or the gods. And so they were going to get to God by way of building this ziggurat. And of course, God comes down and he frustrates their efforts. But then in the very next chapter, what is he saying? He is saying, I will make my name great the way I want to. Not the way you want to. And so he frustrates their efforts, and instead he designs his own effort. And what is his own effort? God's efforts begin with a man worshiping other gods down in Ur of the Chaldeans. He never does it the way that you and I think he would do it. He doesn't go and he, he doesn't pick a, a wealthy king somewhere. He doesn't pick some guy who's got it all together and who's, you know, following hard after him who's perfect or, 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 you know, a close akin to that. Nothing along those sorts. Instead, God goes and he gets a guy who has absolutely no interest in him, and he calls him to himself. Why does he do that? Well, we learn from other parts of Scripture that the reason God calls folks like that to himself is so that he would get all of the glory. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us and and. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, right? When he's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about this ministry of reconciliation, and he says, but we have this treasure that is the gospel in jars of clay. Why? To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Why? So that no man may Boast. And if you can't boast, then it's God boasting from heaven. Because He's the one that did it. It's all of grace, not by works. Why? So that God would get all of the credit and you and I would get none of it. You see, God is intensely jealous for His own glory. That's what the Scripture tells us. He is intensely jealous that he would get the glory and the honor and the praise. He's the creator of the universe. 
He is the initiator of salvation. He made you and he made me and he has called us to himself. And he's doing that. He is bringing this people together that we would praise him and bring glory to him and that he would get all of the glory and praise. Now think about that. What does that do when you and I don't have any ability to boast? You think of the incident with Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And there's Jesus. He looks at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven did. God revealed that to Peter. The same exact way you are here this morning, if you know him, it's not by your own design, it's not by your own effort, it's by God. Think of the way the gospel is talked about. Think about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus when he talked about a new birth. Let me ask you a question. Did any of you here this morning ever have anything to do With the time of your birth, the place of your birth, the generation of your birth, what kind of a family you were birthed into? No. Isn't it interesting that Jesus uses the idea of a new birth to talk about your salvation and my salvation? And then to talk about the spirit blowing and no one knows where it blows and when it blows and how it will blow because that's the work of the spirit. Now think about practically what that should do in our lives. Practically, one of the things that that does when we reflect on the fact that our salvation is not of us but all of God is this. It takes away any ability Any proclivity, it should take away any desire for us to be up on any kind of a platform looking down on anyone, any place, with respect to our salvation. I mean, have you ever said to yourself, I just don't understand why they don't get it. I just don't understand why it is they don't get the gospel. I don't understand why they don't understand. Have you ever thought of someone that way? Have you ever talked of someone that way? You know, maybe had a conversation with them and you left and you just shook your head and you said, gosh, I just don't get it. I don't understand why they don't understand. Really? You really don't understand why they don't understand? Just look at your own heart. Look at who you were before that new birth happened that you had nothing to do with. And now begin your aha moment. Aha. Tried. I had nothing to do with where I'm at. I had nothing to do with knowing and loving God. I had nothing to do with following after Jesus as hard as I do. He did it all first. That's the beginning of a gracious movement towards your community. That's, a, that's the beginning of a gracious movement towards a neighbor who just grinds on your nerves and doesn't get it. That's the beginning of a gracious movement towards a spouse, perhaps, whom is hard in their heart. Right? It isn't some high horse. It, it isn't some platform which we get to look down on people and say, I just don't understand why they don't get it. 
they don't get it because they're still dead in their trespasses and sins, because their hearts are still hard, because for some unknown reason to us, God has not chosen to break through into their lives yet. And so we pray and we labor and we love our neighbor. And that's where this passage begins, isn't it? It begins with the call. It begins with God's movement towards Abraham. It begins with grace. Because Abraham didn't deserve this movement of God. And that's where it begins. I want you to notice the second thing. Notice the nature of the call. The nature of the call is big. It is bold. Because what he is doing is he's, if you've ever moved, (laughs) if you have ever moved from one location to another and not known anyone or known anything, or if you've ever done that, you know what a big deal this is. Because essentially what is happening is God is calling Abraham out of a place that's kind of like, it was the Los Angeles of the ancient world, okay? And he's calling him out of the big city, and he is calling him to a um, a desert community, and not probably like Palm Springs, all right? Had no golf courses. He's calling him He's calling him into a place that was nothing like the place he was. And he wouldn't have known anyone. In fact, he would have probably been in in an area um, surrounded by tribes that would have been none too friendly to him. And God is calling him. And and the nature of the call, just look at verse 2. Well, beginning in verse 1. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. All right? When God calls you to salvation, guess what? He calls you out of everything that you know into something completely unknown. And then what is the nature of the promise? I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing to those who bless you. You'll, anyone who curses you, I'll be a curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the nature of the calling given to Abraham. That's a big deal. All right? We're going to unpack this because it's going to show up again in Genesis. Right? So we're going to talk more about this, but just look at it on its face. You go, this is huge. And here's what God is saying. God is saying, Abraham, I am going to change the world through you. There's an interesting little note in here. He takes him to the tree at Morah in Shechem. Okay, the tree of Mora at Shechem. And so he takes him there. This would have been some sort of a large tree. We have some friends that, that live in outside of Yazoo City, Mississippi. When you go to their house, um, as you're driving down this old country road, and you're in curves and curves and curves, you come to this tree. And it's called an Indian tree. And I, I had never seen one before, but the Indians had... The tree had grown up. They had put something in the middle to cause it to fork out, and it forks into three, and then it comes back together. It's really fascinating. And um, and that tree's left standing there, and so it's the marker. And they say, hey, just turn left at the Indian tree. The first time we were driving by, I was like, there's a lot of trees. Am I, am I going to know what this tree looks like? Bam! There was no doubt what the Indian tree was. It, there's a tree mentioned. In this passage, verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Morah at Shechem. The great tree of Morah at Shechem. 
The nature of this tree is probably that it was a local place of learning. This is where you went and got your oracles. And so God, here Abraham ends up at the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And he ends up building an altar there to the Lord. And, he, and it's almost symbolic as if he went to the place where the locals got their oracles and he said, praise be to my God who has called me and called me here. And so he erects an altar there, almost as if he's saying, we're going to transform. We're going to fundamentally transform. We're going to fundamentally change the way in which you see the world. Somebody said that God never blesses you without also making you a blessing. And you see that in the passage, right? I am going to make you into a great nation. I, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I tell you here something this morning. If Abraham is your father, you are intended to still be a blessing to the nations. God wants to use you and is using you and other believers all over this community and and every other place where the people of God exist. And he is using you to be a blessing to the nations. That the peoples of the earth would be blessed through you. That's his intention. He is your father. These promises yet remain. They're not yet fulfilled. And so you have a wonderful opportunity after the fa- after your father Abraham uh, to follow this big, bold call. That's the story of, of the gospel. God is calling you, as he called Abraham, from self-salvation to his salvation. It always, his call always defies logic in our lives. You can think of the Apostle Paul, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Okay? That one kind of twists our mind. Or take up your cross and follow me. Leave your father and mother. The one who falls into the ground will sprout and give life. You're to lose your life. And in the process of losing it, you'll find it. That's the gospel. That's the beginning. That's what Abraham felt like as he left Ur of the Chaldeans and he followed God. And that's what God does. We've already talked about it, but I want you to notice what Abraham does. Abraham acknowledges God. He follows God. He leaves. He takes Sarah. He takes his nephew Lot. He takes his possessions. He takes all the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out. They went to the place that God was calling them. How did he do it? Why did he do it? The writer of Hebrews tells us. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, when Abraham was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed, and he went. Even though he didn't know where he was going, didn't know what God was doing, he went. Verse 9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, and he lived in tents. 
writer of Hebrews tells us, without faith it's impossible to please God. The Apostle Paul tells us, and we're going to look at this more in the future, but the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, that the great example of faith, salvation by faith alone, it's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's Abraham. Abraham was this initial salvation by faith, through grace, alone. And you want to know something? Strange and crazy as it is, you can also add in there, in Christ alone. Because Abraham was trusting the promise of God. He was trusting that God would provide for his salvation. Through a veil he looked darkly and he didn't understand that the one he was trusting in was none other than Jesus himself. You're here this morning. You get to look back. Jesus has already been here. He lived. He died. He rose again from the dead that you would have new life. But it's still by faith. We still live by faith. We still trust by faith. We still enter into salvation by faith alone. If you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus, I would love an opportunity to talk to you about him. I'd love to explain more about Abraham and why he matters. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus, he's not done with you and you're not done with faith because your walk, the walk that you are now on, the the trail that you're now on, the scriptures tells us is a walk that is by faith through grace. It's still that way. And so this morning we have a wonderful opportunity because we get to come to the Lord's Supper. We get to celebrate the goodness of God to us this morning. And we do it in this visible picture of the Lord's Supper. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us. And so as we're thinking about that, I just want to give you a little bit of an encouragement. The Apostle Paul tells us that, um, for I receive from the Lord, I'm sorry, he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the blood and body of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. This morning as we come and as we gather together, you're here. You've confessed the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've been baptized, and you're a member of an evangelical church. The invitation is for you to come and celebrate the supper. This is not my table, it's not our table, it's not the Presbyterian Church's table, it's the Lord's table. And his invitation is to all those who have confessed him. So if you're here, you've been baptized, you're trusting, the supper's for you. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, my encouragement to you is to let the supper pass you by. Take the opportunity to pray, to reflect upon it. To get up the nerve to talk to me maybe or someone else. But take the opportunity to reflect upon the Lord and his goodness to you. So the supper is for all of those who are making their way to the celestial city. Beat up, battered, bruised, struggling. The 
supper's for you. My invitation to you is to come and eat. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your love for us. We want to thank you for the calling that you've given us in life, that we would come and follow you. Father, we want to thank you for making that movement towards us in the person of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come this morning to the supper, and we are not worthy by our own admission this morning. Every one of us who walked through the door is a sinner, saved, hopefully by your grace and in great need. So we come now to the supper completely dependent upon you for all that we have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.